Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we go over UFC Kansas City, headlined by a banger of a featherweight fight between Max Blessed Holloway and the almighty Arnold Allen. Very pivotal featherweight matchup there, especially for the Allen side of things, who's looking to push his record to 20-1 and and hopefully earn himself a title shot after Volkanovski unifies the belts with Yair Rodriguez in July. In the Coleman event, we got another very solid featherweight matchup between Edson Barboza and Billy Quarantillo, which sure is to be probably fight of the night considering how both of those guys usually go out there and compete. Before getting into those breakdowns, a couple of things we always like to tick off the list on the housekeeping list here. The first of which is the recap of the previous week's predictions. We go 2-0 on lock of the night predictions between PFL and the UFC, starting off with PFL. Riz Van Kuniev, a little bit of a hiatus he was on before making his return for the PFL, or debut for the PFL, I should say. A little bit of a scare in that second round, but the uh, talent and discipline that he showcased was very high level. He was able to reverse the position and eventually finish off that fight in the third round and get that decision victory. Very good performance, and he might end up being the favorite to win the entire thing, considering that Ante Delia and De- well Dennis Goldsov actually is fighting this weekend. But those are the top guys in that uh, heavyweight division that will likely take on home the crown. Very interested to see how those guys continue to match up as this tournament continues on, or the regular season continues on. Dog of the night ends up shitting the bed. I went up with Matthias Scheffel, who actually had a previous victory over Bruno Capeloza, and I expected him to replicate that fight by staying away from the big power of Capeloza, putting his punches on him, putting his boxing combinations on him, and eventually winning that fight by decision. But... Capeloza had other plans and eventually landed that big knockout blow as a lot of people expected him to do in the first fight when they were matched up where Capeloza was a minus 1,000 favorite. It wasn't meant to be in the second fight though for Sheffield so we go uh, we take a loss on the dog in the night there. Lock of the night for the UFC comes through a little bit chalky. It was a very sketchy card for me overall. The only one that I could really settle on that I was really confident in was the Joe Pfeiffer and Gerald Mearshart fight doesn't go to decision. That comes through for us very easily. And the dog of the night was actually my underdog prediction for that matchup, which was Gerald Mearshart. But the durability on the man is tough. It's very inconsistent. You see him take big shots against guys like Bruno Silva and Mahmoud Murdov and then crumple under guys like Joe Pfeiffer, who I still believe has a lot of question marks and I will, I believe is not as good as a lot of the hype is making him seem. This was just not the night to expose him, though. Good win for Pfeiffer. We take an L on the dog of the night. And like I said, L on the dog of the night for Sheffield as well the previous night. So lock of the night prediction on the year go 31 and 9 for a 78% hit rate, while dog of the night goes down to 50%. We're 20 and 20 on dog of the night predictions, which means we're still up considering that we're getting underdog money on all of those underdog picks. Uh, Before uh, getting to the next that I want to really drop but uh, if you are watching this after Tuesday afternoon you'll notice the pinned comment below this video is a link to the early odds analysis for UFC Vegas 671 which is headlined by a heavyweight matchup between Curtis Razorblades and Sergey Pavlovich I gave out the free 
preview for the early odds analysis last week and people have been watching it over the last couple days after UFC 287 wrapped up Uh, but you get as early of an access to it as Tuesday so tomorrow I will be dropping it for the following week's UFC event and you'll get my thoughts or early thoughts on my leans on every single matchup again it's all pre-research and pre-tape but maybe you guys can extract some information from there that can be put up against your own information and maybe take advantage of some of these early lines that is only available through the youtube membership which you can check out in the link below but the top comment will take you straight to that video and you can just get it through there so check that out Lastly, the Patreon plug. Plenty of happenings in the Patreon this weekend considering we got four regional MMA events going down. We got PFL Week 3. We got LFA 156, both going down on Friday. I believe Cage Warriors is going down on Friday or Saturday. That's Cage Warriors 152. And then on Sunday, we got Fury FC 77. Every single one of those matchups will be broken down in its entirety on the Patreon. Link in the description below if you guys have access to those lines. I'll provide you with all the information required for you to make some educated bets and guesses and predictions on those matchups. And I find with these regional shows... It's a bit easier to take advantage of some of the chalk on there, putting them together and getting some good parlays as well as some very live underdogs that are being overlooked because of the fact that not a lot of people are looking at these regional shows. So plenty to take advantage of. Make sure you guys check it out. Link in the description below. All right, let's get off the horse. Actually, last thing I want to say, this is more so of an uh, appreciation that I want to give to you guys because, you know, I I was very much down in the dumps at the beginning of the year, but seeing the consistent improvements in views and subscribers and and likes and all that stuff has been so motivating and so encouraging for your boy we hit another high in terms of the mma lockcast episode in terms of you know like before i was hitting closer to maybe anywhere between 2000 and 2500 views per episode but now we're safely cracking that 3000 mark on a weekly basis well It's been two weeks in a row now. This is hopefully going to be the third week in a row. And then the next goal is 4,000. And it's just consistent. It's a continued growth on a week-to-week basis. And I have nobody to thank but you guys. And I truly appreciate that you guys see the hard work, see the dedication, and see the effort I put into doing all the research necessary to give you the best information possible. And then putting in the work in terms of making it look good for you guys. I mean, I don't want to half-ass this thing, turn on the webcam or just turn on my phone and give you guys a breakdown. I want this to be a positive viewing experience as good as it is an audio listening experience for you guys so uh and then obviously the gist of it all the the information the predictions i want those to be as top notch as possible so i appreciate every single one of you guys if you haven't already hit subscribe please hit that subscribe that is the best and easiest way to support your boy especially if you don't want to go through the youtube membership or the patreon route the least you can do is just hit that subscribe i saw numbers uh, of, of last week i believe it's over 48 percent of people that watch the video are not subscribed and we're getting 3,000 over 3,000 views so if i can add another 1500 subscribers roughly to the to the to the channel here that would be very 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 helpful so if you haven't already please just hit that subscribe that'll be very appreciated all right now let's get right to what you guys want to listen or hear and and talk about and that would be the breakdowns here we go kicking things off in the women's bantamweight division we got 12 and 4 jocelyn edwards going up against 14 and 7 lucy pudilova 
starting off on the Edwards side. She is coming off two straight wins in uh, via decision over Ji Yoon Kim and Ramona Pasquale in fights where she was able to utilize her movement and footwork and outstrike her opponents with the uh, mainly a kick-heavy game, which is something that she heavily relies on throughout her fights. You see in the two losses that she took prior to that two-fight winning streak is a lot of fighters just looking to take her to the ground and grind her out. It's, you know, she's had some decent work off of her back in her earlier UFC fights, but as of late, if if opponents are able to take her to the ground, she very much struggles to get back to her feet. Just as an example, in those two losses, she was taken down a combined nine times and controlled for over 23 minutes. It's obvious that that is the easiest way to defeat her, and obviously, it's not going to be super hard or super easy in terms of staying out of the submissions that she'll be throwing up. But it has been shown for a fact that if you can maintain good submission defense, maintain good top control, do enough work that the referee won't stand you back up, you will more than likely be able to grind her out from that top position. It just seems like a lot of opponents, mainly Ramona Pasquale and Ji Yoon Kim, just had an issue with closing the distance and getting past the leg-kicking game of Edwards. That is pretty much what her game is centered around. Kicks, 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 stay at distance and just hope for the best after that. It's not like she's hurting her opponents very badly. She's just getting ahead on numbers and then her opponents are too frustrated or too far behind to rally any sort of comeback. On the flip side, for Lucy Podolova, she successfully returned to the octagon after going 5-1 and one on the regional scene after getting cut from the UFC the first time around. And she picked up a big win over Yinan Wu where she was able to get a dominant position in that second round and rain down some big shots to get that TKO stoppage. It seems like Podolova has matured a lot since leaving the UFC and a lot of that is surrounded by the fact that she's more than willing to go into the grappling realm now. Before she was a very, you know, I don't want to say hot-headed, but a very aggressive striker that likes to go out there and just throw uh, bombs and and trade in the pocket and hope that she'll be able to hurt her opponent enough that the judges will eventually score it in her favor. However, as she ran into more fighters that were willing to take her to the mat, she struggled to get back to her feet and obviously it looked really good for the judges, which is why she picked up more losses than wins in her first run with the promotion. She only went two and five the first time she was with them and then got cut, went five and one, and eventually made it back to the UFC. But she is most recently, I think within the last couple of training camps, joined SBG Ireland and something they've emphasized is her grappling game. You see through her Instagram as well that she's been actively competing in jiu-jitsu tournaments and she's currently a purple belt in BJJ. So I like the fact that she's trying to round out the rest of her game. Her striking is good enough already. It's just tying in the rest of that game specifically in the grappling realm. I've been very impressed with the way that Pudilova has looked to revolutionize her game and evolve her game, especially with that grappling rope. And I think that's going to be very important for her in this matchup against Edwards, who I have said in the past has very much struggled against people that look to take her to the ground. And Pudilova is a good enough striker to withstand that kicking onslaught that's ultimately going to be coming our way in this fight. And that will allow her to open up opportunities to eventually get this fight to the ground where she can do great work from on top. Seeing that she's working in the Brazilian in jiu-jitsu competitions you got to believe that her submission defense is on point and i think that she can evade most of that offense coming off of edwards's back get into a half guard where she can kind of settle in and do some good damage from on top so i'm going to go with lucy put here and i think she grinds this fight out en route to a decision victory
sticking with the bantamweights, but moving on over to the men's side of things here, we got 12 and 4 Aaron Phillips going up against a UFC debutante 6 and 3 Gaston Bolanos. Starting off on the Aaron Phillips side, he's coming off a loss via submission to Jack Shore, which took place about three years ago, and he's been out of competition for a very long time. He's been struggling with staying healthy and just trying to get fights booked, but it seems to be that uh, most of those fights are starting to fall through for him. But luckily, he does get to welcome Gaston Bolanos to the cage this weekend. Aaron Phillips, very sketchy fighter, in my opinion, right? On the regional scene, he's getting tested a lot of these guys are easily able to get him to the ground but he's been able to pull off some reversals some submission attempts and doing some decent enough work to battle back into the fights but showcasing that he you know he makes mistakes that fighters at this level will be able to take advantage of he owns a gym down in louisiana called head kicks and mma fitness or something along that side and you gotta believe that he comes from a uh, striking background but he's also a bjj and black belt it's just it doesn't seem like he can really tie it together enough to be successful at the highest level of the game. The one thing I won't forget is the fact that he got taken down over and over again by a sub-power striker in Sam Cecilia way back in the day. You know, Aaron Phillips was in the UFC, uh, went 0-2, got cut, put together a decent winning streak on the regional scene, and eventually found himself back in the UFC back in 2021, but was pretty much a sacrificial lamb to the uh, relatively new Jack Shore to the UFC cage. He gets the same uh, task this weekend against a, a debutante, but I, I, you know, like his striking looks fluid, it looks smooth, it it seems like he has some good chops and his grappling not that bad either, but he just gets hit so cleanly. I've seen him drop numerous times on the regional scene that it just seems like his striking defense needs a lot of work and specifically his takedown defense needs a lot of work as well. On the flip side for Gaston Bolanos, you know, the one part of uh, this game that Phillips is not going to have to worry about is the the takedown defense uh, on uh, for himself, right? With Gaston, Gaston's not going to be looking to take him to the ground. Gaston's a 6-3 and three MMA fighter with a storied kickboxing background, which originally got him his claim to fame. I believe even Joe Rogan had him on his podcast way back in the day, but Bolanos, high-level striker, high-level kickboxer, big power in his hands, as you can see the majority of his wins coming in the first round, especially in this MMA realm. I believe only one of them took place in the second round. Um, but that's his style. He goes out there and he puts big power in his opponents. He loves throwing spinning back elbows and spinning back fists and loves to get a little bit unorthodox with it. But the main point is to try to take your head off so that he can get that knockout victory. The big question is what his grappling looks like, especially on the biggest stage. Two of his losses have come via submission, so that's not the greatest look. And that one decision loss that he has via split decision, that came by a grapple-heavy approach from his opponent. I will credit Gaston, though, as he did kind of nullify any type of major dominant position that his opponent was able to secure in that matchup, showcasing that he's working on his defensive skills and looking to keep fights where he is able to be most comfortable. He trains out of the CSA gym in California, which has produced some pretty, you know, solid fighters for Bellator and the UFC. Uh, and I'm just curious to see how they have rounded out his grappling game because he's really going to have to work on that if he wants to be successful at this level. He's 30 years old. He still has a couple of years left to compete at the highest level. Let's see if he can wring that all in and, and make this a, a decent stint in the UFC and produce some highlight reel knockouts. 
it's tough to have it confidence on a guy that's six and three in his MMA career, making his UFC debut, and knowing he's somewhat of a one-dimensional fighter. But the with the amount of power and speed that this guy hits with, I think that he'll eventually be able to catch Aaron Phillips, who has a very lacking striking defense kind of game. Now I'm expecting Aaron Phillips to be looking to get this fight to the ground very actively, but I'm not sold on his wrestling game, and I think that Bolanos can do a good enough job in terms of keeping this fight upright. And then from there, obviously utilizing his superior striking and potentially finding that knockout. But there's no way I'm paying that minus 180-ish for Bolanos in this fight. Again, Phillips has the jiu-jitsu advantage here, not to mention the overall MMA advantage, having way more fights than Bolanos has ever had in terms of MMA rules. Obviously, there's a ton of combat sports experience under Bolanos's belt with all of his kickboxing experience, but it's a completely different game when we strap on those MMA gloves and have the ability to take opponents to the ground. So the spot that I'm looking at most in this matchup is actually the under two and a half. I think there's going to be violence no matter who it ends up coming from. I expect it to be Bolanos by knockout, but I believe that Phillips can utilize his BJJ black belt and potentially find a submission as well. So under two and a half, my favorite prediction for this matchup, but in terms of a straight up prediction, I'm going to go with Bolanos and Bolanos by knockout. Going down in the women's strawweight division, we got 8-2-1 Bruna Brasil going up against 6-2 Denise Gomez. Starting off on the Bruna side here, she's making her UFC debut after successfully capturing a contract on the Contender Series this past season by knocking out Marnik Mann with a beautiful head kick. Now, the one uh, issue that you can see in Bruna's game is her takedown defense. That seems to be what a lot of opponents try to implement on her throughout her career. But you see, as with every fight, she is improving with stopping takedowns or if she does get taken down, getting back to her feet. She's a pretty big woman for this strawweight division, standing at five foot six with a 66 inch reach. And she utilizes that reach every single inch of it. She does a good job in terms of moving at distance and making her opponents pay anytime they try to crash the pocket. She uses straight shots down the middle and she loves using her kicking game to keep her opponents at bay. And it's like I said, it's obvious she's working on her ground game. That is going to be what opponents are going to be trying to take advantage of for the most part, especially with that reach and height advantage she normally enjoys when she steps inside the cage. But I like her ability to create scrambles. I like her ability to just constantly stay active so that her opponents are unable to get a dominant position on top so that she can either reverse the position, do some decent enough work of her from herself uh, on top, uh, and then eventually get back to the feet where she's able to put together a very good striking display. On the flip side for Denise Gomez, she's known as a striker too. She trains out of the PRV team, PRVT team down in Brazil, which was mainly known to be the, the bulk of Jessica Andrade's success. There's been a lot of other solid fighters coming out of that camp, as well as, uh, as, well as Carol Hosa, who I believe is the significant other of Denise Gomez, if I remember correctly. Gomez likes to stalk her opponents, likes to exchange in the pocket and put big power on them. But you see as she's taking steps up in competition that it's getting harder and harder for her to implement that style. Like the the fight against Milana Dudieva, which was the one that earned her her shot on the contender series, she got grinded out for almost 12 minutes of that fight before Dudieva ran out of gas and Gomez was able to knock her out in that last round. The high-end Dos Santos fight. She showcased decent takedown defense in that matchup and then put big punches on Dos Santos, ultimately winning that fight by decision and then earning herself a spot on the UFC roster. But last time around, she 
pretty much got outgrappled by a striker in Loma Lukbunmi, but I don't want to just put Lukbunmi in that one box. Obviously, she's working on the rest of her game, and we have seen over her last couple of fights that she's actively working on her submission game, which is what she was able to secure in her last matchup against Elise Reed. But Denise looked to utilize her grappling more in that fight because she felt she wasn't as superior of a striker in that matchup. And even though she got a couple takedowns, she just didn't do the best job in terms of maintaining that top position, ultimately allowing Lukumi to reverse those positions. And then Gomez was kind of lost off of her back when she was trying to defend whatever Lukumi was doing from that top position. So that's where the the question marks come for this 23-year-old. She's a striker, and she's she has decent enough fight IQ to know, okay, let me take things into the grappling realm if things likely won't go my way in the striking realm. But the level of grappling is the big question mark here. Can she really get away with it and pull it off? Or is she going to continuously give up dominant positions, ultimately nullifying any type of success she's going to have in the grappling realm? It's only Monday of fight week and I can already see everybody out there discrediting the grappling game of Bruna Brasil. Similar to what I did when she was going into her contender series fight. But I think that what I had overlooked and what a lot of people are going to be overlooking in this uh, during fight week is the improvements that Brasil has made in her grappling defense. And the fact that Denise Gomez, even though she looked for takedowns in her last matchup, will struggle to keep fights in that position. I think she's going to get reversed. I think that we'll see Brazil land some big shots from on top. It's not like Gomez has this crazy jiu-jitsu game off of her back either. And I think the main deciding factor in this fight is going to be the strength and size advantage that Brazil is going to be dealing with. Uh, or or enjoying, I should say. Not even dealing with it. Enjoying! I believe it's a 3-4 to height-inch advantage, not to mention a, a big reach advantage as well, where she'll be able to keep the berserker style of Gomez on the outside with her slick discipline strikes down down the pipe but even if this fight hits that grappling position sure Brazil might end up on her back but I expect quickly thereafter for her to either work right back to her feet or eventually hit that reversal that she hit multiple times in prior fights to get that top position do good work from on top or just get back to her feet and get back to her striking prowess she is very strong for this strawweight division as she is tall and I think that's going to be a big deciding factor in this fight I was very happy with her at that minus 230 range, if I'm being honest. But I see that buyback coming in on Denise Gomez. And I'm going to allow people to continue to run with that narrative. But if you're tuning into my show, you'll see how confident I am in Brazil and realize that let's just wait for that better line to come. Considering the love that I'm seeing on Gomez, we might even get Brazil around minus 160, minus 170. And once she hits that, that's a good spot to pull the trigger. Again, I'm already happy at that minus 190 that she's currently at. But I think she is far better than Gomez, the far better striker and again I, I see Gomez just walking into her punches and then eventually getting reversed whenever she does look to take the fight to the ground give me Bruna Brasil and give me her to win by decision next up in the lightweight division we got 12 6 and 2 Lando Venata welcoming back the sophomore now to the cage Daniel Zellhuber who comes in with a 12 and 1 record Lando Venata the one thing I was most surprised about regarding him when doing the research on this fight is the fact that he's only 31 years old it's wild to me that he has been in the UFC for as long as he has because at this point it seems like he should be into his mid to late 30s but it seems like he came in a little bit longer younger than I remembered but his unorthodox striking style as well as his credentialed uh, wrestling background has been the reason for most of his success inside the UFC but it's wild that he has a 4-6-2 record since being with the promotion, never going on a streak of any sort. 
It seems like a win or draw is always followed by a loss. And that's exactly what he's coming off of in his last fight when he got choked out by Charles Jourdain. You saw him utilize his wrestling right off the bat in that matchup by getting Jourdain to the ground, but was unable to keep him in that spot, ultimately giving up his neck, and Charles Jourdain was able to take that on home with him. But it's good to see that Venata is open to going to a grapple-heavy approach should he feel it's necessary, and I believe that we'll see more of that from him throughout this stage of his career, as I don't think he trusts his striking as much as before especially considering that when he is fighting a better striker, those guys are able to get ahead on numbers on him and he just can't muster up the the motivation or the momentum to swing the fight back into his favor. The one thing that I did find going into this fight, one of his posts on Instagram actually, was the fact that he wasn't, he, he, he talked about how when he announced his fight with Andre Feely last year, he just wasn't as excited about it and, and his wife could tell. But then when this fight with Zell Huber was announced, he was very fired up and felt like he had reignited the fire within himself to put himself through a training camp, be as ready as possible for this matchup, and look to try to get a victory. If we have learned anything about the pattern of Lando Venata's career, this loss will more than likely be followed up with a win or a draw. But again, I don't like to believe too much in those patterns. In terms of his preparation for this matchup, he actually shook things up. He is normally a Jackson Wing guy or somebody that likes to train out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, but he changed his training camp, went up to Denver and starting training with Team Elevation. He's been putting in some time with Neil Magny as well, who's a good representation of the opponent that he fights this weekend in terms of his length and his lankiness, so I'm curious to see how that will help him going into this matchup. Opposite of him this weekend is going to be Daniel Zellhuber, who's coming off of his first loss in his professional career. He earned his contract through to the UFC through the Contender Series back in 2021, where he put on a great striking display against Lucas Almeida. In that first round, it seemed like he was a little bit behind, but in the second and third rounds, he was able to put together great combinations, good output, and ultimately beat Lucas Almeida to the punch and winning that fight via decision. In his UFC debut against Trey Ogden, it seemed like he was stuck in second gear and just couldn't get things going. He was landing some decent combinations, but it just seemed like he was behind on numbers. And Trey Ogden was just doing a lot more than him, which seemed to puzzle Daniel. Now, Daniel is working with Extreme Couture, and this is going to be his second training camp with a high-level coaching staff and gym. And I'm curious to see what he had learned from that first fight, if it truly was the UFC jitters that got to him, and if he can recapture the potential a lot of people expected of him going into that UFC debut, especially when he closed as a near 4-1 to favorite in that matchup. Now, I have no intentions in terms of betting Daniel Zalhuber as a favorite until he goes out there and proves to us that he is actually what we thought he was coming off of the contender series. Obviously, he dropped the ball, like I said, against Trey Ogden as a big favorite. But I think that this is a great fight for him to come back to against a step up in competition and try to shake off that UFC jitters. Try to shake off that first fight and be like, okay, I took my first loss. The pressure is off. Let me just go out there and do what I do best. And knowing that he's teamed up with the guys with Eric Nixick and the Extreme Couture, guys i feel like they would be able to come up with a solid enough game plan to work against lando venata obviously i believe that zell huber's takedown defense will be good enough to shuck off any attempt that venata tries to throw here but i also believe that the long rangy striking game with hopefully some more consistency than we saw from him last time around will allow 
Zell Huber to ding up uh, Lando Venata a little bit more from distance. And that's where we've seen Lando Venata have trouble throughout most of his fights. He comes up short against the technically better strikers. And I believe that even though Zell Huber is still young in his career, he is just so good with utilizing his range. And I think he'll be able to pick apart Lando Venata from distance. And I think he will possibly even find the knockout here, man. I know Venata is very tough and very durable, but he's been getting clipped over and over again by long, lanky strikers or guys that just are better strikers than him overall and again Venado is a solid striker in the fact that he's very unorthodox and all of his shots come from weird angles but Zell Huber is a little bit more you know a little bit more crisp a little bit more clean with his strikes and I think that's going to end up being the difference maker here and which is why I think he's going to eventually win this fight by knockout Heading back down to the women's strawweight division, we got 11-7 and Jillian Robertson going up against the undefeated 9-0 Pieta Rodriguez. Starting off on the Jillian Robertson side, she's 2-3 and three in her last five fights, although those three losses are coming to some pretty high-level fighters like Tyler Santos, Miranda Maverick, and J.J. Aldrich. But she was able to pull off a submission victory her last time out against Maria Agapova. Now, there is an asterisk beside that, considering that Agapova was knowingly going into that matchup with a very a pretty torn-up knee and bad knee, I believe, which she's taking care of with uh, surgery at this point in time. But Jillian Robertson stayed on the gas pedal that entire fight, and it eventually paid off for her. She was struggling in that first round to get Agapova to the ground, as Robertson, as good of a BJJ specialist as she is, she still needs to work on the technical aspects of her wrestling game so that she can successfully get fights to the ground where she's able to have more success more often than not. But she was eating a lot of damage while trying to take Agapova down in that first round. But it eventually paid off for her in that second where she was able to get the back and eventually put Agapova clean out with a rear naked choke. That's usually her go-to move as she does a very good job of taking the back of her opponents and sinking in that choke. And she's just so good in terms of chaining those submissions together as well. That's been the calling card throughout her career. If she's not able to get fights to the ground and establish a dominant position, she very much struggles in the other aspects of MMA. Her striking could you still could still use a lot of work and considering that she throws or shoots a lot of desperation takedowns that's why she usually get gets beat up on the feet um, or if her opponent's grappling is good enough she spends way too much time on her back trying to throw up submissions which allows opponents like Tyler Santos and Miranda Maverick to just grind her out from that top position staying out of submissions but filling those gaps by throwing big strikes of their own and making it look good for the judges. On the flip side for Piera Rodriguez, she has a squeaky clean 9-0 professional record, two of those coming by decision in the UFC, and she's shown to be a, a very solid fighter growing on a fight-to-fight basis. She has beaten Kay Hansen and Sam Hughes over her last two fights, having good success in all of those fights, pretty much mainly with her striking, as she's a very solid striker, throws with bad intentions, throws in combinations, but it's also her wrestling game, which has kind of been the weakest part of her game on the regional scene. She's done a great job in terms of patching those holes. Originally, hailing from, uh, I believe it was Venezuela or Colombia, she would take a nomadic approach to her training throughout her regional career. She would just go all around the world training at many different gyms. But over the last couple of years, it seems like she's made a home at Black House MMA in California. She trains along the side of uh, Sabina Mazzo, Tabitha Ricci, and even a fighter that's fighting for an LFA strap next week in Jacqueline Cavalcante. 
gotta believe that training with those high level opponents on a uh, or high level training partners uh, on a daily basis has got to be helping out specifically the grappling game which is again what she was weakest at on the regional scene but you see her defending takedowns or showing good discipline and poise when she is taking down herself and eventually working back to her feet but also with the offensive grappling game which she has shown great fight iq in terms of you know mixing in a takedown if she feels like a round is a little bit too close and that ultimately being the deciding factor why the judges ultimately give that round to her but her bread and butter is the striking if she can use her wrestling defensively throughout her career i think that she'll be able to be more successful as she is a very vicious striker especially when she gets in the clinch and utilizes those brutal knees now this strictly comes down to can jillian robertson get this fight to the mat because if she can't or if she can and is unable to uh, establish that top position or that dominant position i think she gets touched up on the feet now, Piera Rodriguez is no Ioannian Jacek when it comes to her striking, but she's very aggressive and she likes to stay... Um uh, she likes to stay consistent with her shots. She likes tying her opponents up in the clinch and utilizing big knees. I'm not sure how she's going to want to do or how often she's going to want to do that here against uh, Jillian Robertson, who's looking for any opportunity to get in on the hips or get in on the leg to eventually get a takedown. But I think that we'll see the strength and uh, improving gra defensive grappling game from Rodriguez come through for her here. And then in the striking realm, I think it's just night and day in terms of the advantage that Pierre is going to have in that realm. I get it. Robertson has a ton of UFC experience. She has a ton of experience against high-level UFC talent. But the fact of the matter is that Jillian Robertson will always be a middle-of-the-pack fighter. And Pierre Rodriguez has the potential to be one of those top 10 fighters. It's still early in her career. She's still quite uh, young in her MMA career. But I know that she's settled down at Black House MMA. And getting the training that she's getting with those high-level fighters will have her more than prepared for the one-dimensional grappling game of Jillian Robertson. So let that Robertson love come in. I know she was plus 130 and has started, uh, I believe it's out of pick now and she might even end up becoming the favorite come fight time. But I like everything that I'm seeing from Rodriguez. I'm loving the improvements that I'm seeing as well. And I would be happy to take her as the underdog if that's what she ends up becoming by fight night. So final prediction, I'm going to go Piero Rodriguez by decision. Coming right up, we got a light heavyweight fight between two old-timers, if you want to call it that. 24-7, and seven, Zach Cummings, and 24-15, and 15, Ed Herman. Now, it's been a couple years since we've seen Zach Cummings take uh, center stage in the UFC octagon. His last fight taking place in 2020, but he's been out for a while now due to the fact that he's been dealing with a very severe back injury. He was scheduled to fight in, uh, I believe it was April of 2021, but was forced to pull out due to this lingering back injury. And he actually went under the knife in June of 2021 to try to correct it. Now, he's been out of the cage for a long time, like I said, and trying to utilize his rehab and his therapy to try to get back to fighting shape. At 38 years old, he knows he doesn't have many fights left, even alluding to the fact that he might have one, two, or even three fights left. But it was important for him to get back for this fight specifically, considering it takes place in his hometown of Kansas City. Zach Cummings is a BJJ black belt, but you wouldn't know that considering the way that he attacks most of his fights, which is putting his chin down, marching forward, and exchanging in the pocket with his opponents. He has some pretty good striking defense as I've seen him evade a lot of big shots from his opponents with good head movement and good footwork, but he still lacks a little bit of the technical striking capabilities to be a high-level, well, former middleweight. Obviously now competing at light heavyweight, knowing he doesn't have a future in terms of trying to chase a title shot of any sort, 
why bust his body and try to make 185 when the UFC is willingly giving him fights at 205 that he can go out there and put on a good show with. He's a he's still a pretty big fighter, six foot tall, seventy five inch reach, and I just love his toughness and grittiness in terms of just marching his opponents down and throwing big strikes. When he fights are taken to the ground, he showcases very good Brazilian jiu jitsu. Sorry, uh, as he has most recently submitted Trevin Giles and even has a nice armbar victory over Alexander Yakovlev earlier in his career. He even holds a victory over Nicholas Dalby. Now, this guy's been with the UFC for over nine years now and has had some decent wins and obviously some unfortunate losses as well. But he's always been a fun fighter no matter what. He always brings it, and I'm glad that the UFC is giving him the spot in his hometown. Opposite of him this weekend is going to be Ed Herman, who's coming off a loss to Alonzo Menefield. But let's be honest, he should be coming off of two losses with that win over Mike Rodriguez uh, being highly controversial. If people remember, that was the fight where Mike Rodriguez landed beautiful knees to the body and the referee mistakenly thought it was a shot to the groin that crumpled Ed Herman and uh, Ed Herman was had all the time in the world to get his wits back about him. He almost got finished again at the ending of that same round, but luckily for him, Mike Rodriguez emptied the gas tank trying to finish him and eventually left his arm to be taken and Ed Herman was able to pull off a Kimura victory. It was very unfortunate to see Mike Rodriguez lose in that fashion, but Ed Herman does what Ed Herman does and what a veteran would do, and he took advantage of the situation that he was presented. At 42 years old, we know he doesn't really have too much longer in the UFC, and I think they did a great job in terms of matching him up with a guy like Zach Cummings this week in terms of still having a chance to be competitive against a guy who's also on the tail end of his career. In the Alonzo Menafield fight, Ed Herman's lead leg got absolutely chewed up by Alonzo, but Ed's durability, durability held up, and we saw Menafield outstrike him en route to a decision victory. Ed Herman, at his best, marches his opponents down, throws big haymakers, and also has a sneaky submission game, just as we saw in the Mike Rodriguez fight. But it's really toughness, grit, and experience that Ed Herman needs to lean on at this point of his career if he looks to get his hand raised at the UFC level. This is such an ugly fight to bet on that I just have no confidence no matter which way I go. Whether it's with the totals or whether it's with the money line, it's a very difficult fight to bet. I mean, you got Zach Cummings coming back after such a long layoff up a weight class. um, And then Ed Herman, who's 42 freaking years old. I'm going to lean with Zach Cummings as I feel like his style is a little bit more reliable. But the fact that he's coming off such a life-altering injury and surgery and recovery, we just don't know how effective he can or how effectively he can come in and, and put on a good enough performance. So taking him at heavy chalk, I think, is just a big, big no-no. But I do think that he'll be the one landing the better strikes and potentially even dragging this fight to the ground where he can utilize his superior jujitsu and possibly ride out some good top position or maybe even open up a submission opportunity for himself. So I'm going to go Zach Cummings here. Zach Cummings by decision, though, as I expect that he won't be able to explode into a lot of big strikes and may not be able to sell out for some big submission opportunities and more so look to just grind out Ed Herman, collect that paycheck, and just get that experience under his belt, shake off that ring rust, and most importantly, get a win in front of his home crowd. He's probably going to have some hometown cooking in his favor should this fight hit the scorecards, but he's going to have to put on a good enough performance that the judges can justifiably give him that fight. Regardless, I'll go Zach Cummings and Zach Cummings by decision. Heading down to the flyweight division and probably the fight that I am looking forward to most this weekend, we got 14-6 and Brandon Raw Dog Royval going up against 19-2-1 Matthias Nicolau. 
starting off on the Roy Val side, who's coming off of two straight victories after taking two straight losses to Brandon Moreno and Alexandre Pantoja. Roy Val bounced back with a decision victory over Hajiria Bonthreen and a submission victory over Matt Schnell. Now, Brandon Roy Val, I like to call him the king of chaos because this guy goes out there and he has some technical shortcomings in terms of his striking and even his Brazilian jiu-jitsu game, but he creates so much havoc inside the cage that he's able to thrive in it and take advantage of his opponent's hesitancy, especially in those firefights. Match now dropped him as we obviously saw, but Royval did a great job in terms of continuously scrambling, getting out of bad positions, and then eventually finding the neck of Match Nell and choking him out in that fight. So much so that even before Royval completely locked up that choke with his second hand, Match Nell was tapping with both hands because of the squeeze that Brandon Royval is capable of. But even the Kaikar France fight that he won a couple fights back. You know, Kaikar France hurt him very badly. Brandon Royval throws a spinning back elbow of his own while he's hurt. And here it's Kaikar France and eventually finds that submission and gets his hand raised. It's going to not work out for him against higher level opponents, that guys that are able to take that chaos and use it against him. But there are some high level opponents I feel like he can get past by introducing that type of chaos that they may, may not be ready for. Royval training out of Factory X. I think he's created a great bond with his coach, Mark Montoya. And even though Montoya is a uh, t- you know technical striking wizard with his Muay Thai in the background that he brings to his coaching, I don't think that uh, Royval really takes too much to the striking aspect of it, but they've created a great bond in terms of exaggerating his skill set by creating the chaos that they do and how he's able to just thrive in that. And I think they do a great job of meshing together and uh, trying to exploit and exaggerate his skill set. Matthias Nicolau on the other side is a guy that was originally cut from the UFC after getting one loss on his record. He managed to go 2-0 on the regional scene before the UFC's like, you know what? I think we messed up. So they brought him back and good thing they did because he's on a four-fight winning streak ever since touching back down in the UFC octagon. He has wins over Manel Kopp, Tim Elliott, David Dvorak, and most recently knocking out Matt Schnell. But the one thing that one thing that's become very evident is more often than not, his fights play out a lot closer than sometimes his odds indicate. Outside of the Matt Schnell fight, right? That one, it seemed like he was in control of pretty much the entire time. But the Dvorak, Elliott, and Kopp fights were very, very close. The Tim Elliott fight is one that I'll always be scratching my head at, considering the fact that Tim Elliott thought he was up 2-0 going into that third round, although many believe that Matthias Nicolau won that second round without much issue. With that mind frame going into the third round for Tim Elliott, he was more than happy to just cruise in that round and was okay with Nicolau picking up vast amounts of control time in that third round, which ultimately scored that round in his favor and ultimately the fight in his favor as well. I think Nicolau is a very disciplined and solid fighter, given the fact that he only has two losses throughout his 22-fight MMA career. But that's he's a very good fighter. Like Again, he has very good jiu-jitsu, very good striker. I just wish that his output was a little bit higher so he doesn't, didn't have such close fights. Maybe that patience and low-output approach allows him to land the more significant strikes that the judges ultimately score in his favor. But as you see in the three decision victories that he has in the UFC, he's been outstruck by his opponent on numbers the entire time. I just wonder what he's going to do against a guy that's going to put more numbers on him and more output on him. That's where things might start to get a little sticky for Matthias Nicolau. 
Originally, I really thought I'd be on the Matthias Nikolaus side here, as I thought that his just striking style and his discipline and his crispness with his striking would be the difference maker. However, with the thin margins that he's defeating most of his opponents with, I think that Brandon Roy Valkyrie create enough chaos that Brandon could potentially take over with damage, with output, and possibly even a finish. I get it. Matthias Nikolaou is a difficult guy to finish. Obviously, that one knockout that he had to Dustin Ortiz, which got him originally cut from the UFC, that's going to be hard to replicate for Roy Val. But I just think that the, the flashy striking, the endless output, the consistent forward pressure, that's going to cause Matthias to make some sort of mistake that I think that Roy Val will be able to capitalize on. Again, this is that level that we really get to see. Will Roy Val be able to break through and become one of those top five guys in the division? Or will the disciplined and higher level skill set of Matthias Nicolau keep Roy Val from breaking through? We saw Pantoja hold him back. We saw Moreno hold him back. I don't know if Nicolau has that, you know, that cemented high caliber skill set um, to, to evade this chaotic style that Roy Val would bring to the table. So I'm going to go with the raw dog here as the underdog. I'm going to take him to win this fight inside the distance. The under two and a half is not a bad way to go about this as well as, you know, as hittable and as vulnerable as Roy Val makes himself. Maybe Matthias can take advantage of that, but I think in doing so that open opens up other opportunities for Roy Val as well. And that could potentially end up getting him the finish too. So under two and a half, uh, a big part of this matchup for me, I believe. But I do think it's Roy Val who's going to be successful here, pulling off the upset and getting a finish. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 16 and 7, Bill Algio going up against 17 and 9, TJ Brown. Starting off on the Bill Algio side, he's coming off of a decision loss to Andre Feely last time around in a fight between guys that have a somewhat similar style, although I'd say Bill Algio is a little bit more unorthodox and crazy and loose with the striking approach. But Andre Feely was able to put together a very good body of work, especially in that third round where he was able to get the back of Bill Algio and ride out that position. But Algio, who's had a somewhat up-and-down career since being in the UFC, Still has a solid three and two record, or sorry, three and three record since being with the big promotion. He dropped his first fight in the UFC on short notice against the tough veteran uh, Ricardo Lamas, but managed to bounce back with a very solid decision victory over Spike Carlisle. Since that fight, he's two and two, which included that beautiful finish of Herbert Burns by just putting Herbert through the ringer, utilizing uh, or weaponizing his own cardio and uh, slowing down Herbert Burns in that fight and eventually finishing him due to pretty much exhaustion. You know, it seemed like Herbert Burns just had nothing left in the gas tank and Algio was able to take advantage of that. But Algio, at his best, likes to stalk his opponents with his unorthodox striking. And even when he gets taken to the ground in certain positions, he does a great job in terms of creating scrambles and eventually working back to his feet or getting the reversal that he needs so that he can do some good work from on top. He's very hard to catch from the outside, considering he stands at six foot tall with the 73-inch reach. But it's his ability to crash that pocket with speed and with, from weird angles that his opponents more than often are in, unable to get a beat on him. But it's just his takedown defense that needs a little bit of work. Again, he relies on his ability to scramble. So if his opponent doesn't really have that good of a top game or top control game, he's able to more, more than often get out of those bad positions. But Andre Feely and Hercado Hamos were guys that were able to take advantage of that and ultimately grind him out and win that fight or win their fights via decision. 
I think Aljo Star has a lot to showcase in the UFC, and I think he's much better than the 3-3 three and three UFC record indicates of him. We'll see if he can actually get it done this weekend and get back into the green instead of the black. With TJ Brown, he's coming off a uh, victory over Eric Silva last time around, where we saw him uh, endure some early adversity, but eventually get back to that grind, that wrestling game, which has allowed him be, to be as successful as he has throughout his professional MMA career, and then eventually wear on that gas tank of Eric Silva and eventually finish him in the last round of that fight. But we saw him come up short against guys like Danny Chavez and Shailan Nurdenbeka, where he seemed a little bit apprehensive and was unable to keep up with the games that they were presenting. In the Chavez fight, we saw Chavez batter that lead leg of TJ Brown with a calf kick after calf kick, and it just seemed like it muzzled TJ Brown. And then in the Shailan Nurdenbeka fight, we just saw that Nurdenbeka's grappling was a little bit stronger than TJ Brown, and he was able to withstand it for the majority of 15 minutes. But just as we saw in the Charles Rosa fight, just we saw as, as we saw in the Eric Silva fight, if he can get that grappling going, he is a very tough customer to deal with. I still won't understand the fact that he got the Kai Kamaka victory, and that was a fight where I actually had money on TJ Brown, but I thought he got outstruck in that matchup. I thought Kai Kamaka did good work when he was able to get that top position, but there were key moments that it seemed like uh, the judges see, saw from TJ Brown, which allowed him to eventually get his hand raised in that fight. Trains out of Arkansas, but seems to have spent a lot of time down there in Mexico, I believe, specifically in Tulum. Not really sure what is down there, but he seemed to enjoy his time down there. So curious to see what kind of uh, different wrinkles to, the, to his game he's been able to add. But he is in the peak of his career right now. At 32 years old, you got to believe that this is going to be the best version of TJ Brown we see. Will it be enough for him to get his hand raised over Bill Algio, though? That remains to be seen. The question mark in this matchup is going to be, can TJ Brown hold down Bill Algio? Because it's obvious that TJ Brown's going to be looking to take this fight to the ground. I don't think he has a striking skill set to deal with the unorthodox nature and the weird angles in which Bill Algio throws from. The, you know, the lanky striking approach, the movement from the outside. I think that's going to be a little bit too much for TJ Brown to get a beat on. But then on the ground, you know, Unless he gets the dominant back position similar to what Andre Feely was able to against Algio, I don't know if he can keep Algio down. Algio will be consistently scrambling, throwing up submissions, creating reversal opportunities for himself, and then he'll be able to work back to his feet. But I do think that Algio wins this fight. I think the best way to approach it, though, could possibly be the over two and a half. I'd be surprised if either guy ends up getting the finish in this matchup. And even though I give Algio the slight cardio advantage, I don't think it's so big of a gap that he'll be able to take advantage of him like he did against Herbert Burns and get the finish late. I like Aljo here. I think he'll be the one landing the more significant damage compared to the you know potential control time that we'll see from TJ Brown. But I think it'll be Aljo, more better significant strikes, more damage, and make it look better for the judges. Give me Aljo by decision. Next up in the lightweight division, we got veteran Clay Guida coming in with a 38 and 22 record. He goes up against Rafa Garcia, who comes in with a 15 and 3 record. Clay Guida is pulling off victories even at the uh, wise old age of 41 years old, last time around defeating Scott Holtzman via decision in a fight that it started off a little bit rocky for him, but known known as the guy that weaponizes cardio, you know, one of the best to do that from even the earlier portions of the UFC uh, days. Clay Guido was able to put it together in the second and third rounds and win that fight via decision. It was a close fight, but it was clear his cardio, his grappling, and his grinding style was a little bit too much 
for Mr. Scott Holtzman to handle. But you do see him coming up short against guys that are technically better than him in certain spots and have a decent enough gas tank to keep it up. Claudio Poyas was able to pull off his patented knee bar in uh, Clay Guida's second last fight. But we saw Clay Guida grind out uh, Leonardo Santos and uh, eventually get his own submission in the second round of that fight, which was very high paced from the get-go. But then the fight before that, you see Mark Madsen grinding out Clay Guida over three rounds. In a fight that a lot of people thought that Clay Guida's uh, grappling would end up paying out for him, Mark Madsen did a great job in terms of uh, managing his gas tank and doing good enough work in the striking realm so he didn't have to exert too much energy in the grappling realm. But Clay Guida, that's his style, right? His, his striking will never be the greatest, but it's good enough for him to close that distance, put the volume, put the pressure on you, and eventually get you into that clinch and maybe even get you to the ground where he's able to do some decent work from on top. But you got to believe at 41 years old, it's got to start to come, you know, start coming to a to a halt, right? It's going to start slowing down uh, in terms of his effectiveness, especially as he starts fighting younger and younger opponents. He got away with it last time, right? Or at least the last couple of times in Leonardo Santos, who was also in his 40s, and Scott Holtzman, who promptly retired after that fight, who was in, his, uh, I believe, 38 or 39 years old at that point in time. But he's going up against a much younger fighter here. And Rafa Garcia, who's 28 years old and coming off a decision victory in a very hard-fought fight against Mahashate. That was a fight where he got busted open in that second round, just on the side of his head. So luckily, it wasn't in, uh, too much of an impediment on his uh, vision as it was just dripping down his shoulder and onto his body. But it was oozing out of his head. He didn't let that deter him at all as he continued to put the pressure on Mahashate, mainly with a grapple-heavy approach where he was able to get Mahashate to the mat and do some good work from on top, ultimately getting his hand raised by decision. But Garcia is a jack-of-all-trades, it seems. He seems to be a very good striker when he needs to be. He seems to have that grinding, grappling style should he need it. Um, you know, maybe not so much of a, a submission threat, even though he was able to club and sub Jesse Ronson a couple fights back. But he much prefers to just put the grind on his opponents with that forward pressure, with his heavy boxing style, and eventually some takedowns if he feels like the round is a little bit too close. I just don't know if he has what it takes to get to that next level, right? I expect him to be guys like the Natan Levies, Jesse Ronsons, and Mahashate. But you see when he comes up short against a guy like Drakkar Close, you, you see that there is a, uh, a hard cap on how far that Rafa Garcia will be able to take things. Again, he's only 28 years old, right? He's still entering his prime. So he might show us a better version of himself this weekend. But luckily for him, he has a pretty good enough opponent that he could likely go out there and show some solid improvements and uh, open some eyes to who Mr. Rafa Garcia actually is. I thought I'd have more confidence in Rafa Garcia going into this fight, but like Guida ha just has this way of making fights way closer than they should be because of his cardio, because of his grinding style and his ability to kind of nullify opponents up against the cage. There have been fights where I've seen Garcia kind of nullified against the cage, and that's what's giving me pause, especially when this fight goes deeper into the rounds. Garcia has somewhat slowed down in some fights, especially in that third round, but luckily for him, he's done enough work in the first two that he's still able to get his hand raised. But, you know, Chris Gritzmacher is, I don't want to call him like another version of Clay Guida, but like in ways they are similar. And we saw Gritzmacher get an overall MMA win over a guy like Rafa Garcia. That's possible for Clay here. 
But don't don't worry. I'm not so far off my rocker that I'm, I'm going to go out there and pick Clay Clay Guida to win this fight because Clay his recent wins are coming off guys that are pretty much gone right into retirement after the loss, Scott Holtzman, or guys that are also in their forties like Leonardo Santos. Rafa Garcia, 28 years old, still making improvements, coming into the peak of his career. I expect him to land the better and more significant strikes in the early goings of this fight. Maybe not put Clay Guido away, but do enough to win a decision. But over two and a half, not a bad spot here, as I think that no matter who ends up winning this fight, it'll likely come by the judges' scorecards. But in terms of an official prediction, I'm going to go Rafa Garcia by decision. Moving down to the bantamweight division, we got 19-7 and Pedro Munoz going up against 19-3-2 Chris Gutierrez. Now the 36-year-old Pedro Munoz is coming off a no contest to Sugar Sean O'Malley in a fight that two judges actually scored the first round in his favor, but it seemed like the momentum was starting to shift in O'Malley's way as O'Malley was starting to get his uh, get the beat down, get the uh, pace down, get his timing down, but unfortunately it was an inadvertent eye poke which caused Pedro Munoz uh, some issues and ultimately calling that fight off, calling it a no contest. But Munoz has been on some tough times, especially over the prior four fights where he's gone one and three, and most notably coming uh, up short against Frankie Edgar in his first ever UFC main event. That was a fight which was marred in controversy as a lot of people thought that Pedro Munoz deserved to get his hand raised that night, but Frankie Edgar did more than enough work that the judges saw the fight in his favor. Pedro was able to bounce back with a victory over Jimmy Rivera where he utilized uh, his patented calf kick to slow down Rivera and then let his punches go behind that. But Jose Aldo and Dominic Cruz were able to stifle that leg-kicking game of Pedro Munoz and put together a much better striking display, which is why the judges scored it in their favor. And that's kind of the game with Pedro here. If he's unable to successfully implement that calf-kicking game, more often than not, his opponents can traverse the range very well and stay away from those kicks and eventually counter with big shots of their own or even big kicks of their own as well. Pedro is very limited as a fighter because he just sticks with that brawling, stalker-heavy style rather than trying to take advantage of the fact that he is a pretty decent BJJ black belt as well. But it's not often that you see him look to take fights to the ground. He's just content with marching his opponents down and trying to knock their head off. Will he try to change it up at 36 years old and at this point in his career? I don't think so. But we have to remember that he does have that in his back pocket should he need it. Then the other question comes into play, which is how effective can he actually be with it considering we don't see him utilize it enough. On the flip side with Chris Gutierrez, pretty much a dark horse uh, in this bantamweight division who doesn't get talked about enough, but is very much streaking at this point. He came up short in his UFC debut against Jaune Barcelos, but has yet to look back since that fight. There is a draw uh, sprinkled in there against uh, Cody Durden, but for the most part, this guy has only ever seen green. In his last four fights specifically with two decision victories over Andre Ewell and Felipe Kolarish, as well as two knockout victories over Batgaril Dana and Frankie Edgar back in November, Chris Gutierrez is very much picking up steam at this point. It's good for him concerning I believe he deserves that respect and that recognition and giving him a name like Pedro Munoz who you know might be on the way out similar to what Frankie Edgar was dealing with going into their fight but it would still be a great win for Chris Gutierrez and not to mention very good experience for him to go up against a guy that brings the heat the way that Pedro Munoz does. 
But Chris Gutierrez, similar to Pedro, utilizes a very effective calf-kicking game, which allows the rest of his uh, striking to flow after that. He batters the lead leg of his opponents and then lets his punches go behind that. Working with Factory X, who is very much on a uh, high right now, considering the level of success a lot of their higher-level fighters are having, you got to believe that this is a prime position for Chris Gutierrez to potentially pick up the biggest win of his UFC career thus far. I feel like this could be a passing of the torch type of fight, right? This this is going to be Chris Gutierrez's time. And given the one-dimensional striking approach of Pedro Munoz, I think that Gutierrez is just too well-rounded enough in the striking realm that he'll be able to evade the big shots coming his way from Munoz. He'll be able to, he'll be able to either check or get out of the way of the big strikes coming uh, or, or the, the leg-kicking game of Munoz and then implement his own leg-kicking game, which would, could slow down Munoz as, as well. Munoz is very difficult and tough to put away. So I don't know if Gutierrez necessarily gets another finish in this fight, but I think that he'll be able to slow down Pedro Munoz enough throughout this 15 minutes to do much better work as this fight starts to go deep. I like Gutierrez here. I get why he's at shock. It makes complete sense. He has the striking style to deal, like I said, with the one-dimensional side or style of Pedro Munoz. So I'm going to go Gutierrez and Gutierrez by decision. Heading over to the light heavyweight division, we got 29-1 and Tanner Bozer going up against 16-9-1 and Iwan Kutilaba. Now this will be the first light heavyweight fight for Tanner Bozer in the UFC as he has been on a pretty rough run over the last five fights. He's 2-3, and three, most recently coming off of a decision loss to Rodrigo Nascimento. But to... Both of his last two losses have actually come at the hands of a grapple-heavy approach from his opponents, which has made Tanner Bozer realize he's probably not suited for the heavyweight division. Looking at his Instagram, the guy looks in tremendous shape coming into his light heavyweight debut, but it's one thing to come in good shape, it's another thing to try to address the issues which have been the reasoning behind your losses. Not just the weight advantage that his opponents held over him, but also the fact that he's just not doing the correct technical things to stop these fights from hitting the ground. You know, more often than not, you see him hitting his opponents rather than trying to dig under hooks or widen his base against the cage so that he can stop these takedowns, which ultimately ends up with him on his back. And then off of his back, he doesn't really have many paths to get back to his feet, as more often than not, he just looks to hold on to his opponents, stall his opponents so that the referee will intervene and get them back to the striking range. That's where he is most comfortable, though. That's where he does his best work, throwing in combinations, landing good leg kicks. It's just his inability to keep fights in that range, which has been the reason for him taking the losses that he has taken. I just, I don't know if he can change that part of his game to this point. Like, it, they, you know what, they are easy fixes. It's just, will he actually want to go out there and implement them? Because you got to believe that he's going to be dealing with a grapple-heavy approach from his opponent this weekend. Iwan Kutelaba, the guy has been looking to actively grapple his opponents into the mat for the last several fights. From Ryan Spann, Johnny Walker to Kennedy and Zetsuku, he has looked to get all these guys to the ground but has done so unsuccessfully. I think it's the confidence that he drew from the Devin Clark fight four fights back where he was able to utilize his grappling and grind out Devin Clark en route to a decision victory. But unfortunately, he was unable to hold his next three opponents down, and they were all able to either lock up a submission or knock him out with better punches. But Kutilaba has definitely matured throughout his career because he came in as a berserker. He came in as a guy that looked to take your head off with big punches or get taken out on his shield. 
but it was his wrestling grappling or his wrestling background that was the key to his success as well, which I think that he should be leaning into more, even though it hasn't been too uh, helpful for him through his last couple of fights. But that's how he's going to win fights, especially in the light heavyweight division and especially with the background that he has in wrestling. You can only get so far with trying to knock opponents' uh, heads off before you start getting your own head knocked off and start taking losses. Now with his back against the wall, I'm curious to see how he will look to try to save his career and if he can save his spot on the UFC roster. It's tough to have confidence in a guy like Iwan Kuitilaba, who's coming off of three straight losses, and not to mention has had has been forced to tra- uh, change training camps now, um, you know, due to other circumstances. But uh, it seems like he's only changing uh, training out of the UFC PI at this point in time, and I feel like he's really desperate for a win at this point. I hope that doesn't make him revert to his old style of just going out there in a chaotic nature and just trying to knock his opponents out, because I still think that he can lean on his wrestling background to put. Tanner Boser through the ringer here. I get it. Boser looks in great shape and light heavyweight might end up being the better division for him at the end of the day, but there are still those grappling deficiencies in his game. If he's unable to dig the underhooks that he needs to, if he's unable to, uh, you know, widen his base so that he doesn't get taken down, um, he's in for trouble here if he can't do any of those things. And I think that Kutalaba can take full advantage of that. In the striking realm, you know, maybe the, the, Big power shots of Kutalaba keep Tanner Bozer away from throwing combinations and having the confidence in his strikes, similar to when they were in the standing positions in the Nascimento and Bozer fight. So I'm going to lean Kutalaba here. I'm going to lean him by decision, but who knows where his confidence is at and who knows what kind of style he's going to be coming into this fight with, given with his back being against the wall and him feeling the need to kind of impress the UFC brass to keep him around. But I think he can, if he goes out there, uses his wrestling, and stifles the striking heavy approach to Tanner Bozer. I'm going to go Iwan Kuitelaba by decision. Sticking with the light heavyweight division, we're going to go with the 18-6-1 Dustin Jacoby going up against the 12-0 Azamat Mirzakhanov. Starting off with Dustin Jacoby, he was on a very good run since returning to the UFC, with his only loss coming in his last fight against Khalil Roundtree. But he was a guy that was building up a lot of steam in this open light heavyweight division. But it was a poor decision from the judges to score that fight in Khalil Roundtree's favor. I thought Dustin Jacoby did more than enough in that fight with his output, with his effective striking, to nullify any of the big strikes that Khalil was landing. Unfortunately, most of the judges scored that fight in Khalil Roundtree's favor. But Dustin Jacoby has did a very good or done a very good job in terms of utilizing his six foot three frame with a 78 inch reach to keep his opponents guessing from that outside position. Jacoby has great footwork and does, utilizes every inch of the, the cage uh, to just stay at distance, pick his opponents apart with his kicks and follow up with some big strikes. I'd say the most impressive performance that we've seen from him was the Michal Oleg Shajuk fight a couple fights back. He won that fight by decision, but the key in that fight was the fact that he came in with a broken foot and threw zero kicks, which is usually the reasoning why he wins most of his fights. He likes to traverse on the outside and uses kicks up the middle and high kicks to just keep his opponents at bay. But in the Oleg Shajuk fight, you know, a fight against a guy who's very aggressive and loves utilizing his own boxing, Jacoby was able to utilize his own boxing in return and land the more significant strikes. He looked very good in that fight, but looked 
obviously compromised, but it was revealed in his post-fight interview with the broken foot that he was coming in with. He followed that up with a knockout victory over Daun Yung, and some people believe it possibly was an early stoppage, but it was a good win for Jacoby to get on his record. He's a very solid striker. Again, one of the higher level guys in the light heavyweight division. And at 35 years old, it's unfortunate that he hit that hiccup with Khalil Roundtree last time around. But it seems like the UFC is rewarding him with, a, I guess, a step up in competition and a guy that will possibly vault him into that top 8 to top 10 of the light heavyweight division. On the flip side for Azamat Mirzakhanov, who is currently 2-0 in the UFC, 12-0 overall throughout his career... He has finished, I believe, 10 of his 12 fights all within the first round. There's only been a, two fights that have sprinkled into a decision. And, uh, you know, it starts to look a little bit ugly, if I must say myself, when it does get to go that deep. Uh, but he has finished the majority of his fights. His last two, obviously, he finished in the third round against Devin Clark and Tefan Nchukwi. It was the Nchukwi fight that raised his most eyebrows, though. Because Nchukwi was doing a great job in terms of out-voluming him, landing better strikes, stuffing the takedowns, and keeping Azamat on his back foot for the majority of that fight. But luckily for Azamat, he was able to pull out a flying knee in the opening minute of that third round, which got him that knockout victory and saved his unblemished record. In the Devin Clark fight, his uh, takedown defense, as well as his aggressiveness in the striking realm, allowed him to keep Devin Clark on his back foot and eventually find that knockout in the third round. But we've seen, specifically in the Enchukwi fight, that if you could be a better technical striker than him, you might be able to stifle the aggressiveness and explosive nature of his striking game. And if you can keep fights in the stand-up position, you might be able to nullify his game completely. So Mirzakhanov is definitely not the fighter a lot of people expected of him after he successfully got his UFC contract when he knocked out Matthias Scheffel on the contender series a couple years back. But he's still always a fun fighter to watch and always capable of pulling off the comeback victory if required. Can he do it this weekend? Who knows? Barring any type of Hail Mary knockout here, I think we see Dustin Jacoby control this fight pretty easily. From his kicks and utilizing his range and his height advantage, uh, keeping Azamat Mirzakhanov on the outside, defending a couple of takedowns which are inevitably going to be coming his way, and luckily Mirzakhanov's wrestling still has some big question marks about it, I think that Jacoby can do a good enough job in terms of picking him, picking him apart from distance and putting on a great display of striking. Mirzakhanov very difficult to put away, so I fully expect this fight to go the full 15 minutes. It's going to come down to Jacoby remaining as disciplined as possible, staying away from the big strikes, seeing those big strikes coming his way, which I think are going to be easier to telegraph as this fight goes on, considering Jacoby's cardio advantage and considering the mismanagement of cardio at times for Azamat Mirzakhanov. So official prediction here, look for a clean striking decision performance from Dustin Jacoby. We got a banger of a co-main event fight up next, which takes place in the featherweight division. We got 22-11 Edson Barboza going up against 17-4 Billy Q, Billy Quarantillo. Starting off on the Barboza side, can we just take a minute and just hats off standing ovation this man here? Given the fact that he just says no to any or sorry doesn't say no to any of the opponents that the UFC try to put in front of him this guy has fought the who's who of the featherweight and lightweight division throughout his storied UFC career and even if it is a bad matchup on paper for him he still goes out there and tries to give his best effort 
at 37 years old, you got to believe he's coming closer to the end of his career, especially with the amount of damage he's been taking over his last several fights. But good God, this man just learns to, learns uh, needs to learn how to say no to certain matchups. We know what Barboza brings to the table. He brings lightning fast striking, great Muay Thai, and great kicks. But his takedown defense has very much been compromised over his last several fights, which is why opponents like Dan Ige, Makwan Amir Khani, and Bryce Mitch are able to get him to the ground. Luckily for Edson in the uh, Amir Khani fight, he had the better gas tank. So he was able to endure the early onslaught and eventually come back and do most of his good work in the latter half of that fight and winning that fight by decision. We saw him outstrike Shane Burgos and win that fight by knockout late in that matchup. But we have seen when fighters do tend to take fights into the grappling room, that's where Edson Barboza starts to come up short. That's a part of his game that I just don't know if he can shore up at this point of his career. It's just something that is going to plague him throughout the rest of his career and for pretty much the majority of his career. But he's a great striker, good knockout power, uh, fun striker, fun fighter for the most part. But as being a high-level fighter at this point in his career, I think is out of question. On the Billy Q side of things, he's uh, alternated his last five fights with wins over Kyle Nelson, Gabriel Benitez, and Alexander Hernandez, all of those coming via knockout. He has also had losses to Gavin Tucker and Shane Burgos via decision in those fights. But... We know what Billy Q's game is. I like to call him the, uh, you know, the Homer Simpson of MMA. And I don't mean that in a uh, bad way, right? Like the guy usually loses that first round. The guy usually has a very tough time in the early goings of fights, but he does a good job in terms of setting the foundation of the rest of the fight. He still puts pressure on his opponents. He still tries to keep up a pace that makes his opponents work so that he can weaponize his cardio and take over in the second and third rounds, which is exactly what he did to Kyle Nelson, which is exactly what he did to Gabriel Benitez, and that's exactly what he did in his last fight against Alexander Hernandez back in November. After suffering a bad cut in that first round, he rallied back in the second round and eventually finished Hernandez with, I'd say, less than 30 seconds left on the clock in that second round. But that's Billy Q's game. Forward pressure, decent punches. You know, he's a he's a I'd say above average technical striker, but he's a very good jiu-jitsu player as well. Whenever he's able to get opponents to the mat and just batter them on the ground as well. But it's really that pace and cardio, staying in your face, consistently making you work, that constant activity that is just so hard for a lot of fighters to get a beat on, which is why Billy Quarantillo normally comes out with his hand raised in most of his fights. And this fight is going to be an absolute war, and I cannot wait for it. I think that Billy Quarantillo will be able to survive that early striking onslaught, but I think that consistent forward pressure and the inevitable takedowns that will be coming from Billy Quarantillo will break Edson Barboza. I think so much so to the point that Billy Quarantillo will be able to find a finish. So violence is a good way to take this fight as well if you think that Barboza is live in this matchup, because I think his striking advantage and speed will likely give Billy Quarantillo fits in the early goings of this matchup but the deeper that it goes I expect Billy Quarantillo to start taking over the takedowns to come a little bit easier and then that dominant position to show itself that it can either lock up a submission or get that dominant position and start raining down some big ground and pound but I fully expect the cardio of Billy Quarantillo to be the difference maker in this matchup and as long as he doesn't get put out early he should be able to take over later and eventually get that finish so final prediction I'm gonna go Billy Q inside the distance you know you got to sprinkle that round three prop anytime Billy Q takes the takes uh, uh puts on those gloves and gets in the cage so I'm gonna go Billy Q round three TKO
Time for the main event of the evening where we got a great featherweight fight on tap between 23 and 7 Max Blessed Holloway going up against the almighty 19 and 1 Arnold Allen. Starting off on the Max Holloway side who's 2 and 3 in his last 5 fights although all 3 of those losses coming at the hands of one of the better featherweight fighters that we've seen of all time Alexander Volkanovsky. But after taking back-to-back losses to Volkanovski, Holloway was able to bounce back with big decision victories and a godlike performance against Calvin Cater back in January of 2021. And then followed that up with a big win over Yair Rodriguez, which turned out to be a little bit more competitive than most people expected. But Holloway has utilized his cardio, his output, and high activity to break most of his opponents and win on judges' scorecards. The guy is, like I said, his durability is insane concerning some of the big shots that I've seen him eat and continue to march forward and walk his opponents down, but it's usually his pace and his output which cause most opponents some issues. He's able to just march them down and put punches and combinations on them and just give it to them from different angles that they're not able to see it coming from, which ultimately frustrates them and eventually breaks them. That style is going to be very hard for a lot of fighters to keep up with, which is why the only guy to give Max Holloway a loss as of recently was Alexander Volkanovsky. But only at 31 years old, and even with the amount of damage that he's taken, I think Holloway still has what it takes to be at the top of this division, but I think he's going to have to settle for that you know, championship gatekeeper status as long as Volkanovsky holds that title. His, you know, they, there's one guy that's always going to have your number. And for, unfortunately for Max Holloway at this point in his career, it is the champion, Alexander Volkanovsky. He has a very sneaky submission and grappling game as well, which allows him to mix things up on the ground pretty well. But it's safe to say that he does his best work when he's in the boxing range, countering his opponents and utilizing good slipping and, and good combinations to just overwhelm his opponents. On the flip side, for Arnold Allen, who has a 19-1 record, very good uh, record for uh, Allen and showcasing uh, solid skills throughout his career, the one knock on his career has been the fact that he just is not active enough. I believe, what is that, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 fights. He's had 10 fights since debuting in the Octagon back in 2015. 10 fights in 8 years is not that active, especially when you consider the, you know, the usual UFC fighter competes about 3 times a year. Over the last uh what is it? Since COVID, this will be his fourth fight. The first of which he fought against uh, Sadiq Youssef. And even though he only, well, he was outstruck in that matchup by 26 significant strikes, more than double than what he threw that night, he was able to land the more significant strikes, the more impactful strikes, and eventually get his hand raised by decision in that fight. In the Dan Hooker fight, he knew that Dan Hooker was more than compromised coming into that matchup as the Hooker was going back down to featherweight and it looked like to be a very tough weight cut for him. Arnold Allen put the foot on his gas or put his foot on the gas almost immediately in that matchup and was able to get Dan Hooker out of there by uh, you know not really a knockdown but just an accumulation of strikes that had Dan Hooker very messed up throughout that matchup. And then the Calvin Cater fight. 
Allen had some good spurts and some good bursts in that first round to have all three judges score that first round in his favor. But it was ultimately a knee injury at the ending of that first round that caused Calvin Cater some issues. And then it was quickly called off in that second round when it was clear that he had ripped his or shredded his knee into pieces and Allen was able to pick up a, a TKO victory that night. So a couple of you know asterisks that we have to put beside the last two wins of Arnold Allen's career, but I still think the guy's a high-level fighter. My issue with him has been his consistent low-output style, and I feel like anybody that can put numbers on him that a lot of people thought that Calvin Cater and Dan Hooker were going to be able to, they would be able to get far ahead of him and win those fights by decision. But the luck of the bounce has been in Arnold Allen's favor over his last several fights, which is why he continues this streak right now and has gone 10-0 since joining the UFC. He trains with Faraz Ahabi and the TriStar guys, and we know what his game is mainly compromised of. It's just waiting for those opportunistic moments where he can blast into big shots, big combinations, which eventually get judges to see it in his favor. But again, that's not going to work against a higher level of guys. And thus far it has, but he has his stiffest test across from him this weekend in the form of Max Holloway. Now, I want to start with saying that like, I've backed Arnold Allen in the past specifically his fight against Sadiq Yusuf as I thought that he would be able to land the better strikes in that matchup and get his hand raised maybe even get a knockout now he got a couple knockdowns uh, but he was significantly outstruck in that matchup but still did enough work in the first two rounds that he was able to get his hand raised it just did not look good in that third round when he started to slow down and allowed Sadiq Yusuf to get off on so many strikes he was unable to muster up the energy and the the power required to just uh, hit back on Sadiq Yusuf in that third round which is why Sadiq he cruised in that third round i know he was looking for a finish because he knew he was down in the first two rounds so allen did enough to stay safe defensively so he didn't end up getting finished but that's why i took dan hooker in his following fight because i thought if hooker could survive that early knockout power and not you know fully be compromised by the weight cut that he was having to go through he would be able to put up bigger numbers on arnold allen pull away later in that fight and uh and win it again it was a three-rounder fight so i thought that he could win at least rounds two or three off of volume alone but we saw that hooker was way too compromised from the weight cut and arnold allen took full advantage of that and then calvin cater another similar situation where i thought that if cater could survive early he should be able to pull away with this fight down the stretch with his better technical striking and most importantly his volume unfortunately shreds his knee at the end of the first round and loses that fight we didn't really get to see it fully play out now we got a guy in Max Holloway who we know is durable as hell, not very injury prone, so hopefully he doesn't shred his knee this weekend, and is the master at output. And that's what I fully expect him to put on Arnold Allen here. So as long as he stays conscious, I do not believe at all in the fact that people are going to be making up the narrative that Max Holloway is washed. How can he be washed when his only losses have come to one guy that might go down as the greatest featherweight of all time and Alexander Volkanovsky? No way. Max Holloway has shown in the Calvin Cater fight and the Yair Rodriguez fight that he can still compete at a high level even after coming off of losses to Volkanovski. But I still believe he can go out there, give us that output heavy style that we're used to, put the punches on him, put the pressure on him, and get those numbers in the, into the 200 significant strikes and maybe even find a finish later on in this matchup. I really like Max Holloway in this fight to bounce back and to kind of expose uh, Arnold Allen for being, you know, a guy that has benefited from lack of activity and favorable matchmaking to a certain extent. Again, he won the Calvin Cater fight. He won the Dan Hooker fight, but like beating up on Gilbert uh, Melendez at, at that point of his career, 
that was a tee up for him, right? Sadiq Yusuf, that was a good stylistic matchup for him. But now that he's fighting the cream of the crop in the featherweight division, especially a top two, top three guy, I think he ends up coming up short. Give me Max Holloway and give me Max Holloway in round four or round five. I think he overwhelms him and finishes him late. There you guys go. All 14 fights broken down for you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. As always, a reminder, early odds analysis comes out on Tuesday afternoon. Looking ahead to UFC Vegas 71, headlined by Curtis Blades and Sergey Pavlovich, as well as the four regional events I'll be breaking down on the Patreon, PFL Week 3, LFA 156, C, uh, Fury FC 77, as well as Cage Warriors 152, all of that on the Patreon. A ton of work for your boy to do this week. Hopefully enjoy all the content. And obviously, Thursday back for the Lockheed Trinity. Friday back for the three best prop bets. We keep it going, folks. I love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Hit that like and subscribe. And I'll see you guys later this week. Peace.